The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If they were to uh, lose the case because of some technical issue in the law of Montana that isn't more broadly applicable, it would be fairly modest. It would be discouraging that they went through all this trial and didn't get anywhere, but that would be, uh, I I think, the extent of the damage. If the uh, judge were to say that she didn't believe the climate scientists, that would be terrible. It would be the first court anywhere to have done that, and I don't think that that's likely. I I think if the... If the plaintiffs were to lose, it would most likely be on the ground of what's the role of the courts versus the state legislature and the executive in controlling climate change. So it's possible that if the plaintiffs lose, it'll be on that basis. And that would just be the latest of these cases to come out that way. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 16th, 2023. On Monday, 16 young plaintiffs between the ages of 5 and 22 walked into a packed courtroom in Helena, Montana to sue their government. At issue is a 1972 amendment to the state constitution guaranteeing that, quote, the state and each person shall maintain and improve a clean and healthful environment in Montana for present and future generations. 22-year-old Ricky Held and her co-plaintiffs allege that state officials violated that constitutional right. The case, Held v. Montana, now over a decade in the making, is truly historic, the first ever constitutional climate lawsuit to reach trial in the United States. I sat down with Michael Gerard, founder and faculty director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at the Columbia Law School, to talk through what's at stake in this landmark case. We discussed the origins of the trial, its potential ripple effects, and where Held v. Montana sits in the landscape of climate change litigation around the world. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 16th. Michael Gerard on Held v. Montana. So, Michael, you've joined me here today to talk about um, what many are calling a historic case uh, in terms of climate change litigation held v. the state of Montana. If you could, for for listeners who may be unfamiliar with the case, could you just set it up for us? Um, what's some of the the history of the case, the origin, uh, the plaintiffs, and a bit about what they're demanding? A group of young people have sued the state of Montana, uh, saying that the Montana state constitution prevents the state from being as friendly to fossil fuels as it has been. The Montana state constitution has an environmental rights provision that was added in 1972 and not used very much since then. Uh, But it says that every person has a right to a healthful environment. So Montana has a 
a law that the environmental impact assessment process in the state uh, cannot consider climate change when they are deciding, when the state is deciding whether to approve a fossil fuel project. The plaintiffs are saying that is contrary to the state constitution, so they're suing the state. Yeah, thanks for that overview. Um, And I know there's been a lot of movement uh, even in the past month. But I want to go back to the beginning when the original um, complaint was filed. Can you walk through a bit of the the litigation history to get us to this point today when, uh, at the time of recording, um, oral arguments are taking place? So the litigation began uh, several years ago with a broader theory of the state statute. There was a state statute that basically said the state has, is in favor of, of fossil fuels. The Powder River Basin, which is the largest uh, source of coal production in the United States, um, straddles Montana and Wyoming. So a lot of fossil fuel comes out of Montana. Uh, after they sued, the uh, the state uh, asked the court to dismiss the case on various legal grounds, and the the court refused to do that. It said that the case ought to go to trial. Then about a week before the trial, the state uh, went to the state Supreme Court and asked for an emergency order halting the trial, but the state Supreme Court denied that and said the trial should go forward. However, one other thing happened is that the state legislature, in an effort to avoid having to uh, undergo this trial, passed a law repealing their law on the books to be so fossil fuel friendly, which is not to say that they ceased to be friendly to fossil fuels. They just repealed that law and hoped that that would be enough to get rid of the case. But it wasn't. The The trial court uh, said, no, we still have this issue under the uh, environmental impact assessment law. So the case is proceeding, although the nature of the relief that the plaintiffs are seeking is more modest than it had been. Yeah, let's talk about that relief. I think that's one of the most interesting aspects of the case, uh, especially probably for for lawfare listeners. Can you speak to what the original relief was that the plaintiffs were seeking, and then how it has shifted into a, a more modest form, as you just mentioned? The plaintiffs were originally uh, seeking a uh, court declaration that the statute of the state that said that they favor fossil fuels was unconstitutional. That statute has now been repealed. And so instead, the plaintiffs are merely seeking an order from the court that says that the remaining law that climate change cannot be considered in the environmental impact assessment process for considering fossil fuels, that that part is is unlawful. Now, the environmental impact assessment laws are only assessment and, and disclosure. They're not substantive. And so the state could consider climate change as part of the assessment process, but still go ahead and approve a fossil fuel project. So the, the immediate legal effect of a victory for the plaintiffs, if that's what we see, would be very limited, but the decision would have considerably broader significance. Yeah, and I definitely want to get into some of those ripple effects and you know what sort of other litigation that that such a victory could unlock. But first, I want to take the sides uh, each in turn. So uh, as you mentioned, the plaintiffs are a group of young people, some quite young. Um, so I, I wonder if you could just speak to a bit about the unusualness or not of, of that, of such a young group of plaintiffs. And then more on that side, you know, what, what what are the plaintiffs having to prove here, especially in terms of perhaps climate science, things of that nature? So, so again, just on the plaintiff's side, you know, who, who are they? And then what, what hurdles are they facing right now in the case? So let me back up again. Um, so 
there's uh, an, an old theory that actually goes back to the Justinian Code called the public trust doctrine with the idea that the government has an obligation to protect aspects of the natural environment like forests and lakes and rivers. A, a professor at the University of Oregon, Mary Wood, wrote a number of uh, papers saying that the public trust doctrine should also apply to the atmosphere and means that the government has an obligation to prevent dangerous climate change. A nonprofit group then formed in Oregon called Our Children's Trust, uh, which began bringing lawsuits around the country using this theory. Most of the cases were dismissed fairly quickly. Uh, One of them uh, became very prominent called Juliana versus the United States. That was dismissed. It may come back to life. That's a, a different issue. But the plaintiffs in in Oregon uh, were following this this pattern, you know, all these cases organized by our Children's Trust, where you have a group of young people uh, who are the named plaintiffs um, bringing these lawsuits uh, to highlight that the worst effects of climate change are yet to come and will uh, affect uh, these young people later on in their lives and, and future generations. So in the trial, uh, these young people are are testifying and are talking about how climate change is affecting their own personal uh, environment. Uh, one of them uh, likes to do um, uh, rafting, another is a hunter, others engage in outdoor uh, sports and so forth, and they have all been testifying about how uh, climate change is making all of those activities much more difficult for them. So the their principal argument as I said, is that the state constitution uh, requires uh, the state to take actions to protect them from climate change. It's narrower now just on environmental impact assessment, but that is their fundamental claim. Now, let's turn to the defense. Um, what have state officials been saying uh, their defense is going to be? What have, what have you read? What is their response essentially to the complaint and the lawsuit? So they're not denying that climate change is happening or that uh, human activity played an important role in it. They are saying that it's not so bad. They're bringing forth a a witness who is saying that climate change, yeah, it's happening, but it's not as catastrophic as the plaintiffs say. And more importantly, they're saying that uh, the contribution of Montana to greenhouse gas emissions uh, is so tiny that it wouldn't make any difference even if Montana stopped uh, all of its emissions, that the um, emissions that are causing climate change resulted from the activities of you know millions of people over a century. And so uh, it makes no sense just to pick on Montana. Yeah, I, th- I think one of your colleagues wrote a piece about this sort of defense, uh, which maybe he or someone else coined as, as a sort of drop-in-a-bucket defense, how have courts ruled on similar defenses in perhaps similar cases? So the same argument was raised in the landmark U.S. Supreme Court case of Massachusetts versus EPA in 2007. The defendants, uh, EPA under George W. Bush, uh, were saying that it didn't make sense for them to have to control greenhouse gases because of all the emissions from China and so forth. But the Supreme Court majority said, said no, every country has its own obligation and every country needs to do um, its part. And so exactly the same thing is coming up here that um, even though it's true that Montana's emissions are a small part of the global picture, every uh, place, every uh, unit of government, every company needs to do its part. 
And now, now to turn back to the question we were addressing earlier, um, what will change if the plaintiffs are victorious here? What are some of those ripple effects that you mentioned? Uh, you know, what sort of litigation could this unlock, uh, as, as I asked earlier? So this is the only the second trial on climate science in uh, that's ever happened in the U.S. In fact, in the world, uh, there was one in 1997 in Vermont, but this is the only one since. And there have been a lot of decisions based on submissions of papers and arguments of lawyers, but this is the uh, only the second time that you've had live witnesses on the stand subject to cross-examination, subject to the crucible of a trial. If if this case is successful, I think it will send a, a message around the world that climate science has withstood uh, this kind of uh, of examination. Uh, that if a if the court rules in favor of the plaintiffs, that the, this court, after hearing evidence on both sides, has concluded that it's a serious issue, and I think it will it could embolden other lawsuits under a variety of theories. We we saw something like that happen a few years ago. Uh, there was an, a very important decision in the Netherlands called the Urgenda versus Kingdom of the Netherlands case, where the courts of the Netherlands held that the government of the country was doing too little to reduce the country's greenhouse gas emissions and gave the country's government very specific numerical targets for reducing their greenhouse gas emissions. That decision uh, helped spark um, a wave of decision in in several other countries around the world. And we now have uh, successful lawsuits in Germany, France, Mexico, Colombia, Nepal, several other countries um, uh, under comparable kinds of theories. So a, a success in one place tends to engender similar kind of cases in lots of other places. That's really interesting. I mean, it, on the one hand, it does make sense, given the interconnected nature of uh, the climate crisis. I'm curious if you can pick a few of those examples to sort of follow the thread, what happened after these successful lawsuits? So in the in the Netherlands, the uh, government uh, did uh, tighten its targets and it closed a number of coal-fired power plants earlier than it had planned to do. Now, that is not to say that they're doing enough. And in fact, a few months ago, a, a citizen group brought a new lawsuit in the Netherlands saying the government still isn't fully complying with this order. In France, a court uh, told the uh, government of France that it needed to do more to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, the government did some, but uh, just about two months ago, a different court in France said that the government of France still isn't doing enough. So these decisions don't necessarily have an immediate impact. It's not like the many lawsuits that say you can't build this pipeline or you can't build this power plant. Those do have an immediate impact. These cases that are looking more generally at a country's emissions uh, require continued uh, watchdogging and, and, and enforcement to make sure that the that the requirements are met. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People By Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile 
is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Now let's talk about the flip side. What do you see potentially happening should the plaintiffs um, lose their case? Well, it would partly be a question of on what basis did they lose the case? If they were to uh, lose the case because of some technical issue in the law of Montana that isn't more broadly applicable, it would be fairly modest. It'd be discouraging that they went through all this trial and didn't get anywhere, but that would be, uh, I I think, the extent of the damage. If the uh, judge were to say that she didn't believe the climate scientists, that would be terrible. It would be the first court anywhere to have done that. And I don't think that that's likely. I, th- I think if the if the plaintiffs were to lose, it would most likely be on the ground of what's the role of the courts versus the state legislature and the executive in controlling climate change. Many cases that have been brought around the world have been dismissed on that kind of theory. So it's possible that if the plaintiffs lose, it'll be on that basis. And that would just be the latest of these cases to come out that way. So I think I think that would have some but limited negative impact. And speaking of the role of the courts in addressing the cl- climate change, I'm I'm curious, you know, why this is so historic essentially. You know, why is this the second time that climate science has gone to trial? What explains in your view reticence on the side of the court to take up cases like this? Well, most of the cases, the great majority of the cases that have been brought under climate change. And let me just say that uh, we, the the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law maintains a database that tries to capture all the climate litigation in the world. And we've found about 2,200 cases around the world, of which about 70% are in the US. But the great bulk of these are brought under administrative law theories, where the courts are merely looking at the administrative record. And so uh, the decisions don't go to trial. The courts look at whether the administrative record supports the decision that was made by the by the agency. This is one of the very few cases that is brought under a constitutional theory, and uh, that's how it, it has gotten to the point where uh, where a a trial was necessary. So procedurally, it's unusual. Our children's trust, as I said, did bring a bunch of lawsuits under comparable theories, but. All of the others um, were basically uh, uh, dismissed, mostly uh, because of separation of powers concerns and related kinds of considerations. And do you have a sense of how many other states have a similar Green Amendment or a similar environmental protection uh, enshrined in in, a, in their state constitution? It's about half a dozen. It's you know a question of how you define it, but Pennsylvania has one, and that became the subject of an important decision from the Pennsylvania Supreme Court about a a decade ago concerning fracking. Hawaii has one, and that's the subject of a trial that's coming up in September concerning the force of Hawaii's environmental constitutional right. New York adopted one just about a year and a half ago. Um, uh, New York now has a new 
constitutional right to a clean environment embedded in its state constitution. And there have been a handful of lawsuits brought under that, but none of them are really about uh, climate change. And given this that this is playing out at the state level, um, do you see the federal government getting involved in any way? Um, you know, how could this interact with federal policy or the federal government, if at all? Well, the the federal government is not at all involved in in this lawsuit, and the in in general these days, environmental plaintiffs are are less eager to go to the federal courts for this kind of relief because the current U.S. Supreme Court is not a very friendly venue for establishing new rights. It used to be that the Supreme Court was establishing or declaring new rights, but in more recent years, they have been taking away rights. So uh, the plaintiffs in these kinds of cases are less likely to want to go to federal court than they are to go to state court. Now, turning back to the case itself and the trial, rather, um, what is the current status of the trial and, and what are you looking out for as oral argument unfolds uh, over this week and the next? Yeah, so so it's not just oral argument. It's it's a live trial with witnesses. And it uh, it began on, on Monday. Um, today is, is Wednesday the 14th. It's going to go on a total of two weeks. And so what's been happening uh, each day so far is that the plaintiffs have put on a couple of expert witnesses and have also put on several of the of the young plaintiffs. Uh, the state has chosen not to cross-examine the, the young plaintiffs, and they've asked some questions of the, uh, of, of the live witnesses. So the, the case is scheduled to go, as I say, a, a total of two weeks, and then presumably there will be some post-trial briefs, and we'll wait for the court to decide. And it may be obvious to some, but can you run through uh, the the legal strategy there of why the state has chosen not to cross-examine these young plaintiffs? Well, these young plaintiffs are sympathetic, are sympathetic people. And I think that if the state were to cross-examine them, if they were to go after them, they would just come, come off as mean, <laughs> and they didn't want to do that. In the Juliana case, uh, there were depositions of the young people. And for instance, the young people were stressed, uh, were pressed on things like, uh, you know, you say that your your asthma is is worsened. Do you have measurements of of the degree of of coughing and the degree of air pollution and so forth? It just comes off as as mean to go after these these young kids. So I think I think it's a wise tactical move by the state not to cross examine them. Now there have been a lot of superlatives thrown around in the coverage leading up to the trial and, and of the trial itself. What's your sense of, of just how big a deal held the state of Montana is um, in, in the greater landscape of climate litigation? You, you mentioned that the center maintains a, a tracker, a global tracker. You know, yeah. How big a deal is held situated you know, in the backdrop of these 2,200 other cases? Well, for years, the, 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 the plaintiffs and environmental advocates have been wanting, to, uh, wanting a trial or winning several trials, wanting to actually uh, put uh, witnesses on the stand and hear from them and let the other side um, cross-examine them. Except for this this uh, uh, one case in Vermont in 2007, in 2007, this is the first time that has happened. So, um, uh, And so much new science, climate science has come out since then. It's uh, quite something to watch, um, and it's being streamed on, on Zoom, to watch actual 
scientist giving this testimony uh, on the witness stand. That hasn't happened before with that one Vermont exception. I'm curious also what the risk is here for you know, anyone who wants perhaps the state to do more to address climate change or to curb fossil fuel industries, pollution. Is there any risk here in pursuing these types of lawsuits besides the obvious risk of the potential to lose it? I guess what's the, are there the drawbacks to this sort of legal strategy? You know, you have to look at each at each case, but I, I think that the drawbacks are are very minor because the odds are quite low that the court is going to find that that climate science is is a myth or, or you know that kind of thing. Any judge that had that view probably wouldn't let the case get this far. So I don't think we have that risk. Uh, clearly, if the plaintiffs lose, the opponents of climate action will make a big thing of it. But I think that the the, the legal grounds for uh, under which they might lose are pretty narrow and, and wouldn't have uh, much negative impact. And as you continue to watch the trial unfold on Zoom, as you mentioned, or, or um, as you read you know, the post-trial briefs and other things, what are you specifically looking for as more information comes out and as the court rules on aspects of the case? Well, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see what the state's witnesses say. They know that they, they're putting on a, a well-known climate scientist named uh, Judith Curry, who is not a climate denier by any means, but she uh, tends to say that uh, climate change isn't as bad as as many of the environmental advocates say that it is. Um, I'm sure uh, she'll, she may also say that the contribution of the state of Montana is so minor that, that the court shouldn't order action. But we don't know exactly what she and the other state witnesses are going to say. And so I'm eager to see how that goes and to see what happens in cross-examination. One thing I always like to do is to open it up to the guest. Is that, you know is there anything else that you want to speak about in terms of this trial or similar ones? Uh, anything I, I should have asked you that you wish I did? Uh, any Anything else really? Well, a couple of things. One, uh, I'm, I've noticed that all of the uh, expert witnesses that um, the plaintiffs are calling are experts from Montana. They're uh, climate scientists and physicians and others from Montana who are all superbly qualified. And I think it was an excellent tactic that um, they they chose to to choose uh, people from within the state and not to fly in people from distant areas. Another thing <clears throat> I'd like to to point out is that the last four or five years have really seen globally quite a remarkable trend for more climate change litigation and more victories in climate change litigation. As I said, that we've we've seen decisions in, in quite a few countries where the courts, uh, mostly using constitutional theories and human rights theories, have told governments that they do then they need to do more to fight climate change. There are also climate change uh, cases that are now pending before the International Court of Justice in The Hague, before the Inter-American Court of Human Rights in in San Jose, Costa Rica, uh, before the European um, uh, Court of Human Rights in, in Strasbourg. Uh, one has been brought before the International Tribunal on the Law of the Sea. One is expected shortly before the African Court of Human and People's Rights. So this litigation is really uh, is is really becoming very prominent, very active all over the world, uh, largely because few, if any, governments in the world are taking adequate action to fight climate change. Ideally, the governments would act and the 
uh, national parliaments would act. But failing that, people resort to the courts, and quite a few of the courts have become very receptive to this kind of claim. Just to go back briefly on your first point, uh, I'm curious why you think that's such a good strategy to have specifically uh, Montanans uh, testify at, at a Montana trial. Well, it's easy for a, a state court or people in the state to say, oh, these are people parachuting in from New York or California and whatever. What do they know about our state? And I think it's much more persuasive if you have uh, people from the state who know about the particular conditions in the state and can speak more authentically to the the issues they're addressing about the impacts that climate change is having on the state. And in the uh, the many other cases, both domestically and internationally, that you just mentioned a, a second ago, uh, what's the one or two that you're really following closely uh, in the coming months and years? Well, there are a couple where the decisions are eagerly awaited. Um, a a trial-level court in the Netherlands um, ruled in a case against Royal Dutch Shell uh, that the company needed to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions, and not only those in the Netherlands, but also globally, and not only the emissions from the operations of the uh, of the oil company like Leakage, but also the emissions from its customers, or the people who use the gasoline and and other fuel that that Shell produces. Uh, so that was quite a remarkable trial level decision. It's now under appeal in the in the Netherlands, and and people all around the world are are watching eagerly to see how the appeals come out. Another case where we're awaiting the decision is a farmer in Peru, Mr. Lua is saying that his farm is endangered by the melting of the glaciers in the Andes. And he's gone to a court in Germany saying that uh, RWE, which is the largest electric utility in Germany, is responsible for 0.5% of global uh, greenhouse gas emissions. uh, And therefore, RWE should pay him 0.5% of his damages. Obviously, this is a case brought to make a principle rather than to get a lot of money. The total amount of money has been calculated at about $20,000. But the the trial court in Germany allowed the case to go forward. They uh, threw out the motions to dismiss. They indicated that they actually wanted to go to Peru to see the glaciers. The pandemic then happened, and that delayed them. But a couple of months ago, they actually did. Several of the judges went to Peru. They they looked at the glaciers, uh, which certainly suggests that they're very interested in the case, since that's quite an extraordinary step for judges to do. And we're now eagerly awaiting the decision from that German court to see how that turns out. Well, Michael, I'm not sure how you do it, keeping such close track of uh, litigation in Montana, in South America, in Europe, but we are very glad you do. And I really appreciate you taking the time to come and speak with me on the Lawfare Podcast. Good talking to you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get out of free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.